I'm Alan Cornett, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we explore and celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. In this episode, I sit down in the loft of Lexington's La Petite Delicat on National Avenue to talk with the culinary evangelist, Lexington chef Dan Wu of Atomic Ramen. Dan and I discuss his time on MasterChef Season 5, getting his insider's look. We follow his career path that led him to pursue ramen, the trailblazing doors that have opened him, and the value of taking chances. Plus, why Dan vowed never to open a restaurant. Enjoy. You've done a lot of interesting things. I've been pretty busy for the last five years, I would say. Yeah, so it's... uh, in, in running my uh, official podcast background check on you, that all sorts of things pop up. But I'm, I'm a big fan of Atomic Ramen. It's my go-to when I go to the barn. Nice. So uh, we'll explore some of that. And you were just mentioning to me off-air that you're also now at UK in the food services there, uh, bringing ramen, bringing Atomic Ramen to the... To the young people? Yeah, bringing uh, a different kind of ramen to college kids. <laughs> well, I was about to say, this is a big upgrade from typical college ramen. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, um, it, it, takes, uh, it took a little bit of time to kind of educate kids about it, because when they first see ramen, a lot of people still think about the 10 cent package ramen. Right. Right, that you kind of, you know, we survived on in college, um, and to kind of convince them that like, no, this is you know, locally made noodles and house-made stock that we run for 10, 12 hours a day and all fresh ingredients, all house-made, and it's a whole different ballgame. The food services at UK is, uh, it is light years beyond <laughs> the, uh, the old K-Layer grill mm-hmm. when I was at UK. Mm-hmm. It is an extraordinary thing. I drive through campus pretty regularly and see a lot of the different shops, but I'm encouraged that local places like Atomic Ramen are getting in there. That's a, that's a great step forward, I think. Yeah, I, it's, it's, a great, um, it's a great service and it's a great thing for students and it's a great opportunity for uh, local restaurants like myself. Uh, I'm in the 90 along with uh, Athenian Grill, Taste of India and Smashing Tomato all locally homegrown you know restaurants and it's been just a an unexpected but definitely welcome avenue of growth for all of us right so you so this is your first year in there uh so we started in late january of 2019 so we did it one semester already and then uh this is our first full semester starting this fall okay great and it's going well so far yeah, the response uh, has been good. The kids are destroying us every day. We run out of food. Yeah. All, you well, know, that's almost great. Every day. I mean, I I can see where it might be hard to get them to make their first order, but I also feel like once they've had one, yeah, it won't be hard to get them back. 
Well, the, the beauty of the dining hall setup is they swipe in to walk in the door and then they can eat what they want. So there isn't the kind of risk that you would have going into a restaurant and right. putting down 10, 15 bucks for some food that you've never heard of. They can try it. If they don't like it, they haven't really spent any money. You know? Right. Well, that, that would have been extraordinarily dangerous for me when I was a student <laughs> yeah. if, if they had had that kind of setup. Yeah. I mean, they had, you know, you could swipe in and get sort of standard cafeteria fare. Right. But um, I, I, I feel like I went to college in the wrong, well, century, I guess, yeah. is my problem. Right? Yeah. So let's tell me how, how did you build a relationship with UK? How did that come about that you were able to get in there? So UK got, uh, the UK Food Services is run by Aramark and they got a new regional manager about two years ago and his name is Big and he kind of came in to shake things up and he basically went around town and started just trying restaurants because he was new to Lexington uh, and he found some that he liked including Atomic Ramen and he approached me and started throwing all these ideas at me. And at first I was like, who are you? <laughs> and what are you even talking about? Like, what do you mean in the dining hall? Like, none of it made any sense at first. Sure. Uh, and I come to find out later on that this is the first time it's been tried in the entire Airmark slash university system. Oh, wow. So we're basically piloting this program of That's creating- That's exciting. Yeah, it is. Creating these partnerships between Airmark and the university and local restaurants. And we've had multiple visits from other Airmark people and other university people from other schools mm -hmm. who are looking at this model and thinking like, hey, we could do this at UofL or Clemson or Tennessee or wherever. Right. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, it's exciting in the sense that we're, we really are trailblazing. We're the first ones in the jungle with the machete, right. trying it out, making all the mistakes, sure. and then creating these sort of structures and procedures so that other places could replicate them. Right. But you know, it's a nice, I guess, for, from a long-term business perspective, you're building future clients there. there. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I feel like with small businesses and restaurants, you have kind of two, two or three basic models. You have your classic mom and pop, uh, very often immigrant-run restaurants where it's the family running the restaurant, all the waiters are the nieces and nephews and kids of the owners, and they work 90 hours a week and until they die. And uh, you know, occasionally they get to take a vacation, but you can't really grow that business. Um, and you have the other type of um, business that eventually becomes franchises or chains with an eye on sort of growing in uh, some sort of corporate way of multiple locations, multiple cities, franchising it out, all that stuff. So I kind of come in between those two. Like I, you know, came here uh, to the United States as a kid from China. So I and my parents actually ran Subway sandwich shops here in Lexington. Oh, interesting. So I didn't know that. I kind of come from this weird mix of the two that we're first generation, you know, we were first generation immigrant business owners but then also we bought into a national franchise. So having all that experience growing up kind of informed what I wanted to do when Atomic Ramen uh, came into being. And my 
thinking was always I wanted to create a brand and a company and a concept that could grow mm -hmm. and that could grow beyond me being there 90 hours a week. Right. Um, that could be expanded into other parts of town, into other cities, uh, you know, and possibly franchised out to other owners. When the UK opportunity came, came along, it really kind of opened up a new door mm -hmm. of thinking like, oh, I could keep expanding or growing first off on UK's campus sure. and then possibly to other, just replicate this model right. to other campuses. And it's something that I would have never in a million years thought about connecting to a university, but mm -hmm. here we are. Right, that, it's really incredible. And it goes to show what doors can open when, when you're ready for them to open. So. Yeah, uh, I, I used to play a lot of poker and one sort of, um, motto that I always had was uh, anybody can get good or bad luck but if you're not ready for the good luck you're gonna waste it you're gonna right. squander it so when the cards come your way you still know how have to know how to play it how, how to maximize those opportunities and how to take them uh, I could have easily said this sounds weird I don't get it no thanks right uh, I was more like this sounds interesting and risky and I'm not 100% ready for it yet, but let's do it, and I'll learn as I go, and I'll get ready for it. Sure. You know? Well, and as you were saying, it's, you're essentially piloting this. There, there isn't a playbook. Somebody has, right. to, somebody has to write the playbook, and that's yeah. what you're doing right now. Yeah, and uh, I've never been risk-averse. I mean, I, you have to be not risk-averse to open a business in the first place, but I've always had the, um, I don't know, like, those kind of opportunities, they definitely excite me more than scare me. So sure. when it came along, I was like, I have no idea what this is. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, the, the ramen empire awaits, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit and, and stay on the atomic ramen story. So why ramen and how ramen, I guess? When did, mm. when did you first start thinking about ramen in any sort of professional way? Mm. It really, everything for me professionally started about five and a half years ago, almost six years now, uh, when a friend of mine sent me a text and said, hey, October 21st or whatever the date was, uh, Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, Master Chef tryouts. And I was like, huh, okay. And this wasn't even a show I really necessarily watched. But at the time, I was getting more and more interested in cooking as an amateur, uh, and I was in kind of a tumultuous, ready for change kind of part of my life, and I was like, what the hell, let's, let's go for it. So go up to Columbus with my friends, um, bring a dish, auditioned, got on to MasterChef, uh, filmed in the early part of 2014. Um, came back home a couple months later, the show aired, uh, I ended up being on eight episodes of season five of MasterChef, and that was it. That was the never look back moment uh, that kind of kicked down the doors and allowed me the opportunity to, to get a lot of opportunities in terms of cooking for other people and cooking professionally and kind of being among the ranks of the other, um, you know, more established Lexington uh, chefs. And in a lot of ways, you could see say it was like a push to the towards the front of the line it was mm -hmm. like I got to cut line uh, and we can talk about imposter syndrome later that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole ball game um, 
I, I think yeah. that I think imposter syndrome is uh, an epidemic in, yeah. <laughs> in society. It, it, e- honest, everybody deals with it. Yeah, and I think it's a I think it's it's an okay feeling. I think it's an honest feeling. Sure. Because what you're what you're talking about there, I think, is that maybe you've had more luck or opportunity than other people, and sometimes you feel slightly undeserving. And I have to remind myself, like, there were plenty of people who have been on that show or any other show. And they were on the show for however many episodes, and then they go back to their normal lives. That's all they wanted out of it, or they just wanted to be on TV, or, or they just didn't have the wherewithal, or the capital, or the support to create something out of it. And you go back to your old lives. And for me, before the show started airing in Lexington, I knew, I was like, this is it. I'm on eight episodes. I've got eight weeks where there's just going to be a fire and a spotlight on me. Right. And this is it. I'm gonna create. I'm gonna create a career with this. I'm gonna. My foot's in the door, and now I'm gonna start pushing on that door, and, and push it open. Well, and I would think one of the nice things about that is, it is pre-taped. Mm-hmm. You know, other right. people don't, right. but you know how long you're gonna be on it. Right. But they're already in the can. You're free to operate to take advantage of the spotlight. You don't yeah. have to worry about going on the show. That's all done. Right. Right, exactly. Uh, well, what was interesting was uh, my close family and friends knew like how many episodes I was on. I obviously was a contractually obligated not to tell sure. that kind of stuff, and B, like I didn't want to because I wanted people to be excited right. and, and watch it. But I remember before the last episode that I knew I was going to be on, I was trying to promote it. We were doing watch parties all over town. We did them at um, like uh, West Six and Blue Stallion and Smiley Pete's and, and different places. And I was really trying to encourage people to come without uh, spoiling the fact right. that this was going to be it. I was just like, you don't want to miss this one. <laughs> right. No, like seriously. <laughs> um, but that, uh, that viewing party, too, was, it was something else. We had a Smiley Pete. Uh, we had a packed house in there full of friends, family, and just random you know, supporters. And when the moment came... At the end of that episode where I got kicked off the show, um, I, I, I would always, between uh, in the commercial breaks, I would get on the mic and tell little like inside stories and stuff you didn't sure. see and yeah, things that, like that. Yeah, that's nice. And so at the end, when I spoke a little bit about it, like just this room full of people just started like clapping and cheering for me and, and it was something else yeah. to, to feel that kind of support. And it's really carried me through to where I am today uh, I really can't say enough about how supportive Lexington has been for not just a business owner, not just a restaurateur, but also somebody who's trying to get back to the community and do, you know, organize a lot of things and be an activist and all this stuff. And it's just been such a great place to do all of that. I think that Lexington, by and large, from, from what I've witnessed, Lexington likes to see it, local people do well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't think that they're is the sort of negativity or jealousy you might see in some situations. I think people genuinely yeah. like to see, we've got somebody on TV, let's support yeah. him. You know, if, yeah. if, he can, if he can take home the apron, so be it, that'd be great. And also I think Lexington to a lot of degrees is the perfect size. It's just big enough to be able to really get into uh, out of the box uh, things culturally or in terms of cuisine 
and it's just small enough to still care and it's small enough that if you really try you can make an impact and make a dent uh, i remember coming off the show or during what while the show was airing my friends from the show the other uh contestants who lived in like la or new york or chicago they were jealous of me because they would see on my social media that I would have a viewing party with like 300 people. Sure. And then they would go to a bar and have a viewing party and there'd be like 12 of their friends and nobody else in the bar cares right. because it's New York City. Who cares? Everybody's been on TV. Right. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. Um, so I have, was Half really, the people working in the bar extras on TV shows. So. Something <laughs> like that, yeah. Um, so, and I couldn't imagine trying to open a restaurant in an LA or a New York mm -hmm. or a Chicago where the rents are so crazy it's so so competitive um it's just it's got to be murderous oh sure um and and coming back here to be able to, to have the opportunities i have here it's really been the perfect place yeah well and i think atomic ramen is something that is conceptually different than anything else in lexington mm -hmm. i mean it's something really unique yeah uh, it's not just another you know fill in the blank well, in terms, or in, in terms of cuisine, and I think this goes for all small businesses, it's really hard to kind of get in that window of perfect timing of, to catch the zeitgeist. Because yeah, you look at something like, let's say, like pizza places or burger places. We're awash with them. And, and you see these trends happening where like in one year, suddenly like there's, here's a burger place, there's a burger place. And now it's suddenly like this is the year of the burger. So would I open a burger place right now? No way, right. we're oversaturated. Um, but would I open, uh, say five years ago, could you open a Syrian restaurant here? Or uh, um, you know something a little more sort of out there or edgy or just unfamiliar? Um, and so to catch that perfect timing of like, people are starting to think about it, people are starting to be able to accept something a little different, but we're not so far off that it couldn't happen. Uh, when I was researching about ramen, uh, I would say a year and a half, two years before I opened Atomic Ramen, I took a little, I took a little ramen tour of the, of the surrounding areas. At the time, there was no ramen in Cincinnati, there was no ramen in Louisville, and certainly none in Lexington. You had to go three hours to Indianapolis, Columbus, and Nashville for hmm. ramen places. At the time, now this is three, four years ago now, there were only five ramen places in those three cities. Oh, wow. And three of those five ramen places had only been open for about a year. Mm -hmm. So I knew the timing is just about right. The, 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 the surf is just starting to crest. It hadn't crashed yet, but it's coming. Right. And I was like, okay, the timing sounds right. Now, if I had gone around and there was no ramen until you got to Chicago, you might say, okay, Maybe it's Lex too early. Yeah, Lexington's not, not ready for this. And that's always a risk. And for me, I would always want to err on the side of being like pushing the envelope more rather than playing it safe. Right. Uh, I want to bring something new that people haven't seen. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the concept itself and the branding, you know, when I was creating it, it wasn't even a conscious effort. I just knew I was going to loop in science fiction and comic books and that sort of geek culture. Uh, that I was into, that was part of my personality. Uh, I was never going to open a classic Japanese, you know, fancy looking ramen shop. It was always going to be something fun and irreverent and very pop culture heavy, very my personality forward. Mm -hmm.
Well, and that's, that's worked because having something, again, having something different, not something that's just been photocopied from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. How, when you were looking at those ramen, the ramen places, Indianapolis, Nashville, and so forth, uh -huh. what kind of ideas were you able to get from them and what did you decide this isn't for me? Um, it's kind of interesting how much you can learn from figuring out what's not for you. Sometimes you don't even find what is for you. Sometimes you just know like, okay, I'm not doing that right. particular thing. And all the places I went to, they were all a little bit different. Some were kind of like more sort of working class, lower end styrofoam cups. Some were had the fancy wood and, you know, playing the jazz and had, you know, $8 cocktails, you know, things like that. Uh, and what was to some degree inspiring was the fact that none of them were anywhere close to what I was doing, which was encouraging. Mm -hmm. If I saw other people doing what I was already doing, I would be inclined to like, okay, let's, let's turn, this, turn this thing you know, a few degrees this way and let's be original. Right. Um, but it, it was inspiring in terms of the kinds of approaches they were doing, in terms of how many different types of soup stock they were doing, how many different types of ramen, what they were doing for appetizers and things like that and seeing you know ultimately a lot of the decision making because there's no roadmap for it a lot of the decision making in terms of how the menu came about was like what do i like it, right. it really started with what do i like what do i think other people will like and then kind of diverge from that and and a lot of that has grown since we opened to see what people like and kind of move in those directions one example is we didn't have a vegetarian stock option for a few months after we opened. People asked us about it all the time, and I hadn't perfected the veg stock yet, and I didn't want to just throw one out there as a as a afterthought, you right. know. Which I think a lot of vegetarians, a lot of places they go, they get the afterthought on the menu, you know, and that's it. And I was like, if I'm gonna make a veg stock, I gotta make it right, and I gotta make it really tasty without all the the animal protein in it. And then when I finally did it, people really enjoyed it. And it was just, it was a matter of me, you know, business is all about compromise, but just there are certain things that I don't want to compromise in terms of like taste and, and things like that. While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty, but I'm not eating or posting about food I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. When you decided I want to do a ramen shop, how did, it, how did you get from that to opening at the barn, for example? What so, was the path for that? Yeah, so it's a very crooked path, which is very much like my entire life, honestly. Uh, I was an art studio major at UK, never had an art job, worked a bunch of retail, worked some internet jobs in San Francisco, opened a video store in Brooklyn, uh, was a poker dealer for a while, just did all kinds of random stuff. After Master Chef, uh, I made a career for several years um, basically being kind of a private chef. Uh, and doing small uh, dining events, not quite catering. It would, my, my very typical 
event would be uh, somebody, a friend of a friend of a friend, approaches me on Facebook and says, hey, my wife's turning 50 next month. I'm going to invite 12 of our best friends to the house. Would you make a dinner for us? Uh, and then they could say, like, hey, we've got celebrity chef, you know, this guy that was on TV making dinner for us. And that was kind of my career for a little while. Mm -hmm. And that was super, super fun. My only rule that I had for that line of work was uh, tell me if you and your guests have any dietary restrictions and then I'm not going to tell you what I'm serving until I get there and then I'm going to talk you guys through it and then I'll leave you a copy of the menu but uh, that element of surprise was super fun and mm -hmm. uh, none of my clients ever said no. They were all very excited about that. So after MasterChef there were two questions that everybody always asked me when they met me. One is, what, what's Gordon Ramsay like? And two was, when are you gonna open your own restaurant? And the answer to question two was always never. I was like, why would I open a restaurant? The failure rate is so high, it's so hard, you need so much money, you gotta work hard, it's competitive. All the reasons, rational reasons not to open a restaurant. Also, because I was happy doing what I was doing. Uh, the downside to my career then was I had to hustle like crazy to get these gigs. Um, come January, February, where the whole industry slows down and everybody's broke and hunkering down at home, I had nothing. I had nothing for like two months. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how am I gonna get through? And then I got a cooking job uh, with a catering company. And it, so it was, it was fun and exciting, but also like very tenuous all the time. So this company from, um, from Birmingham comes up to Lexington wanting to create this shopping center, uh, now known as the Summit, and they wanted to create as their centerpiece the Barn Food Hall, and they wanted, they were very um, insistent on having everybody in the food hall be local, no chains. So one, and, and they wanted everybody to kind of have their own niche as well so that you wouldn't be cannibalizing each other's business. Uh, they really wanted an Asian slash noodles concept in there but they didn't really have any good candidates for it. And meanwhile, two of the other people that were signing on with them, uh, Wida, who's been a guest on your show, the queen of local cuisine, Absolutely. right? And then Tao Green from Crank and Boom. Mm -hmm. We um, love Tao as well. Yeah, Tao's awesome. They both recommended me, or referred uh, them to me. Uh, so first off, I learned that you know in life, when somebody you respect vouches for you, you better step up and deliver. Right. Yeah. Because, no pressure there. Yeah, because they <laughs> they put their name on the line, right? right. That you're not. I'm not going to be a complete, you know, loser, you know, and ruin their word. Um, so I hadn't thought for a minute, honestly, about doing restaurants. Uh, leading up to that, I was doing my private gigs, but I would always also start doing pop-ups and stuff at like night market or warehouse block party or. Uh, outdoor events and stuff uh, and I was starting to kind of try different kinds of menus and more and more I started honing in on uh, East Asian food and also like uh, East Asian comfort food street food and then I would do these little restaurant takeovers um, in either catering spaces or restaurants during their off hours and have like ticketed events where we would just do a dinner little did I know I was basically practicing to be a restaurant right. at that time and the more I did those, those became ramen-centric events. So when Bayer approached me and had this conversation with me, um, that was the first thing that crystallized in my mind. It's like, oh, of course I do ramen. Uh, and then it 
kind of went from there. And um, I'm, I'm the type of person that I don't like to daydream. I don't like to come up with ideas that I can't do anything with, you know, uh, and it applies to other parts of my life. If you said like, oh, Paris is beautiful, you should think about going to Paris. Well, I'm not gonna think about going to Paris unless I know, hey, next June I have some time and some money, I'm gonna plan to go to Paris. Otherwise, I'm gonna stick that idea far, far in the back of my mind and forget about it. Um, but when I'm ready to, like I'm gonna go full bore into it and that's what happened with the restaurant. I'd never thought about opening a restaurant and then the opportunity came and again, it's being ready for luck, right? right. This thing kind of gets dropped in my lap and I said, okay, well, let, let's make it happen. And we did. So when, when your moment came with Master Chef, you knew that this was your moment. You just didn't know what the moment was going to be. Yeah. The, um, the, the way I've approached life, I think, in the, in the last several years is, like, I don't know what my next great thing's going to be. I honestly don't. Because if you rewound you know, four years ago and said, hey, you, you'd be running a restaurant, I would say, no way. If you rewound seven years ago and said, hey, you're gonna be on a national TV show, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Don't be ridiculous. So in the same way, whatever I'm doing two years from now, I probably haven't conceived of it yet. Um, so that's kind of the beauty of like embracing what comes, but also being ready and being ready to say yes. Well, you've really, with the barn and now with the situation at UK, both of those are really pioneering type concepts. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of local food hall you all are doing, I mean, maybe there's one out there, but I don't... It's the first of its kind yeah, in Kentucky, right, yeah. for sure. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, I think, also a testament to the local food scene that that Lexington was able to pull that off mm -hmm. with all local mm -hmm. uh, restaurants, but also very different mm -hmm. restaurants. As you said, there's no overlap there. Right. That there's, uh, that conceptually they're all different. And Kentucky or Lexington's food scene has come a long way to be able just to do that, I yeah. think. And, and also to, to supply the kind of uh, places at UK as well. Yeah. The, the the thing that um, got me thinking about this issue, and I think about food a lot, um, both as a you know, chef restaurateur, as a community activist, and as a writer, um, food is so tied into culture to me and, and identity. And I remember several years back, uh, a Facebook acquaintance had posted on Facebook and said, hey, I have a friend coming in from out of town. What are some like, great Lexington places, like Kentucky restaurants, to take them to? And a lot of people throughout you know, all kinds of sort of like southern restaurants and, you know, places where you could get hot browns or fried chicken. And, uh, and I was like, you know, at the time, I was like, we have great sushi. We've got great Korean. There's great uh, Thai food in this town. And it made me think about the idea of like, oh, like what is Kentucky cuisine? What is Lexington cuisine? And to step out of the box of thinking about, you know, southern food is default cuisine and then everything else is quote unquote ethnic cuisine of being kind of to some degree ghettoized. And if you think about the way both writers and critics and kind of the public think about cuisine, uh, when you think about Lexington and you say, who are the best chefs? 
very often they're white men uh, who run high, mid to high end American, continental, French, European, southern type restaurants, right? Um, and then you suddenly have categories for, oh, best ethnic cuisine, best Mexican, best tacos. And so to have your cuisines always kind of cut apart and to some degree ghettoized um, has always bothered me. And I've wanted to not just single-handedly, but also to, to help highlight, I used to do a, a podcast called The Culinary Evangelist, to help highlight um, other chefs and people who are doing things that are outside the mainstream and to, to kind of give them that spotlight and say like, this is legitimate cuisine. This is Lexington food, you know what I mean? Like there is great Thai food and, and great uh, Korean food in Lexington. That's part of our cuisine, that's part of our tapestry. It shouldn't just be, you know, hot browns and burgoo and, and fried chicken. Obviously, the Lexington is very strong in that traditional cuisine. Wida is somebody who's led yes. a, a, a lot of that. But in the past few years, and even in the past 18 months, a lot of the dynamism that we're seeing in Lexington are from those, well, I guess we'll say non-traditional sure. cuisines. Yeah. What you're doing, what uh, Sam Four's doing, and mm -hmm. uh, a, a very strong uh, Mexican and Central American mm -hmm. uh, influence cuisine in Lexington that has to some degree flown under the radar, I think, of a lot of people, but right. it's, it's nationally recognized yeah. uh, f for how good it is. And so uh, I, think, I think it's important to explore that, hopefully. Yeah. We'll do that with this podcast. Yeah. But uh, it's also a treasure out there that Lexingtonians and people in Central Kentucky can easily take advantage of. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, your idea of flying under the radar. Well, who's holding the radar gun, right? Who sure. are the gatekeepers that say, like, this is high-end or fancy or, you know, um, uh, you know, sophisticated cuisine versus what is street food, what is ethnic cuisine? And what you realize is very often the success of a restaurant or a brand in general is not just about the product, it's not just about the food, it's about the representation, it's about, you know, being able to go out and do interviews in English, um, to be able to have a great social media presence, to be culturally uh, uh, fluent, to be able to speak those scent languages and be able to schmooze people and, and be connected to institutions like UK or the art museum or the city or nonprofits or Keeneland, all of that stuff. You know, a, a great example I think is like Taqueria Ramirez over Absolutely. on Alexandria. Wonderful place. Yeah, wonderful place. They're uh, essentially, they're a cult favorite, right? A lot of people know about them, a lot of people don't. There are plenty of people in Lexington who are like, oh, I don't know about that neighborhood. You know what I mean? Just like, not because it's actually dangerous, which is not, uh, just because it's like, it's foreign to them. You know? I, I could probably literally eat there every day and yeah. be happy. I yeah. mean, it's, it's wonderful. Absolutely. But I feel like they're never going to get their real renown if you made a top 10 best restaurants in Lexington, just no, no categories, top 10 best restaurants in Lexington, they're never going to make it on that list. They're always going to be in the subcategory of best street food, best food under five bucks, best Mexican, best whatever, right? 
uh, and it, that kind of irritates me because, uh, and I'm not taking anything away from the people who would be on that top 10 list. Many of them are my friends and acquaintances. Many of them have worked really hard to build their brands, to create really great food, really great hospitality. But they're also people who are going to get interviewed. People who, when they open a new place, is going to be a big deal um, because they have these connections and these established um, ties. And you know, you learn in life like who you know so much more important than what you know. You know what I mean? To have those connections. And I felt lucky opening Atomic Ramen that I had people like Wida in my Rolodex to be able to call up and say like, hey, who do you guys use for linen services? Or do you like this service versus you know, that vendor? Or what do you do? Like I have this employee who's no-showed twice in a row, but I really like him. Like, have you run into this? Mm -hmm. To have somebody like that with her years of experience at my back was an amazing resource. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a mentorship. Absolutely, yeah. and And those, as you were pointing out earlier, the restaurant business is a tough world. Sure. Most don't make it. Mm -hmm. But having that kind of tried and true in, uh, information that you don't have to suffer through to learn. Right. Because it, can get, it, can, it can be the difference for a place of yeah. surviving or not. Because those first year mistakes are expensive. Sure. They're expensive. Uh, some of them can be irreparable. But most of them, honestly, are just like, you're gonna spend so much time, energy, money, frustration, heartache, going through stuff that you really don't have to. Mm -hmm. And I really love the relationships that I've cultivated with um, different kinds of mentors in Lexington. And I wanna kinda continue moving that forward to be for other people. You know, I've only been really a professional chef for five, six years. So I'm certainly not as experienced as a lot of chefs and owners. But if somebody came along to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a food truck or, hey, I'm thinking about doing these little pop ups, like I would love to talk to them because I want to help other people succeed and give them that kind of advice. And sometimes the advice is don't. <laughs> sure. You know, sure. Tao and I often joke that we wanted to start a consulting company to talk people out of opening restaurants. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. Because <laughs> and here's the honest truth of it. It's not even being snarky or mean. Some people just have no business doing it. Oh, I can see that. Right? You would have to have a certain personality type really to pull it off, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, not just personality type, but um, I think some people, I th for restaurants, I think it comes generally from, from two types of people who open restaurants. One is the chef-driven, where they make amazing food, and they're like, I want other people to try my food, I want to do this thing. But then you realize, once you open your restaurant, that owning a restaurant is not the same thing as being a chef. In fact, I don't even know how chef owners do it. To, mm -hmm. to, to be in the kitchen every day, executing that food, and paying all the bills, and making sure all the equipment is working, and scheduling their employees, and making sure their taxes are done, you know, and making sure the health department is happy. All those things, um, the cooking component of your job keeps shrinking. You know what right. I mean? Because that's the thing you can hand off to other people and train mm -hmm. them to do. And, but, and cooking is the whole point yeah. for the chef. That's the yeah. whole point of yeah. the, the restaurant. So there, I've known plenty of chef owners who kind of bemoan the fact that they're growing or that their business has gotten bigger because they don't get to cook anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hardly do cooking and prep anymore now that I'm running multiple locations. 
the other type of restaurant owner is simply somebody with money who likes to go out to eat. And they, they go around and they like, this is amazing, this is super fun, like I wanna do this as well, I've got the capital, I'm gonna throw out a concept out there and then hire a whole bunch of people and hire a chef and all this stuff. And you know, and they realize how much work it is and how thin the margins are and how difficult it is. And it doesn't always work out for them either uh, because sometimes their vision isn't as pure or clear as it could be as somebody who's in there every day. Because a lot of these kind of owners is like once they open it, they kind of farm everything out and they step back and wait for the money to roll in and it doesn't always happen that way. Let's shift gears a little bit. I'd like to talk about Dan Wu prior to pre MasterChef. Mm -hmm. so let's go let's go all the way back and <laughs> I, I read through your origin story on, on your website, yeah, on Atomic uh -huh. Ramen. You were born in China. Right. And you came here when you were eight. Uh -huh. Is that correct? So what, what was the impetus for, for coming to America? Um, China in the 70s uh, into the early 80s uh, and prior to that was a very closed off country. There was basically no migration outside of the country at all. Uh, when Chairman Mao died in the, I want to say it was the late 70s, early 80s, and Deng Xiaoping took over, he kind of opened the country up for um, both commerce and uh, travel and migration. So my dad um, got to come to the States to pursue his doctorate okay. in, uh, in Fargo, North Dakota, of all oh, places. Wow. Oh, wow. Right? And now, that would have to be a little bit of culture shock. I, that, Fargo, North Dakota would be culture shock for, for me, I yeah, think, coming from yeah. Kentucky. So. Well, honestly, he, my dad applied to every grad school, every PhD program he had ever heard of or could in the United States and accepted the first one that gave him money. So we very easily could what, have... What area was he studying? Uh, microbiology, microvirology, actually. Okay. Um, and so it makes me realize through luck or circumstance, we could have easily ended up in Iowa, in Florida, in Kansas, in Kentucky. Sure. You know what I mean? Just as easily. So Fargo, North Dakota, he moved there. Uh, my mom and I moved there about a year and a half later. We were on a visitor's visa and then we kept extending it and extending it. And then we applied for our green card, eventually got our green card, eventually got our citizenship. Um, and then my dad ended up getting a job at the University of Kentucky in the plant pathology department. Okay. As a, so that's what brought you to Kentucky. Exactly. Yeah. He got a job as a researcher, like pure scientist. Uh, and then a few years into that, his boss, his professor was retiring and he was realizing he was in his, at the time, I guess, mid forties, same age I am now that he thought, do I want to be competing for another job at 45, competing against these 23-year-old grad students who will work for half the money? Like, it doesn't sound great. And so he did what a lot of immigrant intellectuals do in this country. He opened a small business. And being the researcher that he was, he researched into um, the fastest growing franchises. This is back in, uh, let's see. 89, 90, 91 maybe. Um, and at the time, the fastest growing and the lowest cost of entry franchise was Subway. So we opened a Subway sandwich shop and uh, kind of went from there. 
So he was was he still at UK? No, well, he had at that by that time I think. Well, once once we opened the shop, he he quit. Yeah, to run the the subway full time with my mom. Where where was that subway? The first one was in Meadowthorpe. Okay. So it's still there. It's changed ownership, you know, sure. multiple times by now. My mom retired from that a few years ago and sold it off. Uh, so they started in Meadowthorpe, and then they had two or three other locations. Uh, part of the lessons I learned from their experience too was uh, how not to grow too fast, mm -hmm. because they grew way too fast uh, and just couldn't keep up with the the quality and the management. So did you did you work there? Was that your? I did. The, yeah, I was a junior in high job. school. Yeah. I was a junior in high school, and uh, I was their first manager. Uh, worked for them over there for a little while, and I think at some point, like a lot of immigrant parents. They probably had that struggle of A, wanting me to take over the business, and B, wanting me to do something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so that opportunity was always there for me, but being a young man with other interests, I was just like, I don't want to do But this. you had to have picked up some very valuable uh, food service restaurant experience there, just yeah. seeing how, how one works. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw that it was hard work. I saw how many hours they put in. And I saw that you couldn't apply the first generation immigrant sort of micromanaging working 80 hours a week model to a multi-location business. You just couldn't do it. You, you can make it work with one. It's not even what I would want to do even if I just had the one because I don't want to be at work 80 hours a week standing right. on my feet, you know, micromanaging everything, not letting anything go. Like you do all the ordering, you do all the scheduling, you do all the stuff and not kind of not trusting anybody except your family. Um, so in a lot of ways, I did learn a lot of what not to do from my parents. Um, and ultimately when my parents got divorced, my mom said, and I think she was the smarter one, she said, I want no debt and one store. You can have the rest. And she took the one store, she took the original one at Meadowthorpe, which at the time was the lowest performing store she doubled the sales in a year. Wow. Because she was there, honestly, micromanaging it, you know, right. there all the time, having a real handle on things and really turned it around. So that was also kind of inspiring to me to like what you can do when you're there and operating and controlling right. things. And, and so you got, you've seen, I guess, both sides with that what a store looks like when it's struggling, what one looks like when it takes off, right. and how to make that happen. Yeah. And maybe that was partly the subconscious inspiration for me when I uh, moved to New York City, to Brooklyn in 2002. Um, I opened up a video store in Brooklyn. And this is on, I would say, the beginning of the end of the video store era. Um, back when Blockbuster was still around. Sure. Back when Netflix was mailing DVDs in envelopes, mm -hmm. little red envelopes. Uh, so streaming wasn't a thing yet. Um, and so having the hubris of youth, of just really honestly not knowing any better, I was in my late 20s and I was like, what the hell? Like, I know a lot about movies, sure. Um, you know, pulled a bunch of money out of my savings account, didn't have a business plan, didn't do any sales analysis, didn't do any research, just rented a space in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, 375 square feet, tiny little shop, Got some shelves, bought a whole bunch of DVDs, and started a business. And uh, it did pretty well for a little while until the, uh, the whole economy crashed in 2008. Uh, and then eventually uh, sold it off. Uh, we ran for almost 10 years. Wow. 
Yeah. That's, that's a good run, though, in, in Brooklyn, is. I would think, especially. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, we, thankfully, were locked into a pretty good, um, pretty good lease, pretty good rate, even though, I mean, it was still outrageous because it's oh, New I'm, York City. Yeah. Yeah. Especially by Lexington standards. For it sure. Be, it would yeah. be. So, is, so did you come back to Lexington at that point? Yes. So um, at the time, so I originally went to San Francisco uh, with what I'm going to call my future ex-wife. Um, we lived there for four years. We lived in uh, Brooklyn for four years. Uh, we had a kid. We had a daughter. Uh, and then we realized how much of a pain in the ass it was to raise a kid in New York City. Not just expensive, but just so competitive, so fast-paced, so just like no time to like live your life. And we both were like, let's get out of here. Where do we want to go? Well, where do, you know, when you have a kid, especially like, where's your family, right? Both our parents were in Lexington. Hers were in Richmond. And we're like, okay, let's go back. So uh, before my daughter turned one, we moved back to Lexington. Mm -hmm. And I've been back here ever since. So let's talk a little bit about, about MasterChef. We've talked about what came out of it. Mm -hmm. You said your friend told you about it. Yes. And it was in, what did you say, Cleveland? Uh, Columbus. Columbus, yeah. sorry. Yep. Columbus. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Pete told me about it, and it was really, uh, this was kind of during... This was 2014, you said, is when it was filmmed, right? 2014. It was it, filmed early 2014, so the, the original local audition was October of 2013, I guess. Okay. So we're coming up on six years right. of... Yeah. Of, uh, of my new life essentially mm -hmm. but at the time I was kind of in the middle of my divorce mm -hmm. so I was kind of primed and ready for change and kind of primed and ready for almost anything it's just like what the hell let's do it so you had to make a dish take it up there and then and we had to fill out all these different application forms and stuff and, and it was an open audition essentially you can just go uh, and so I knew I was going to, because uh, I had asked him, we were going to a conference room with no cooking equipment whatsoever, and you had, I think, two or three minutes to plate it in front of them. So I was thinking, like, what would travel well? What would eat well, not having to be, like, super hot? Um, so I ended up doing a uh, duck confit bao bun. So I did five-spice rub on uh, duck confited in its own fat, made my own uh, bao buns, a little Chinese steam buns, which if you've ever done it, it's such a pain. Not worth it. Like right now, the bao buns are served by buy. Um, and then uh, had a really great sauce, a little bit of cucumber scallion with it. And then I took it there, and then I kept testing it along the way. And like the night before, I was like, man, these, these buns are getting dry. And so <laughs> we go to Target that night, the night before the audition, and I buy a fabric steamer and I stick the buns in a Ziploc bag and I zip it around the tip of the fabric steamer and I give it a, a, a blast of steam air for like 10 seconds mm -hmm. and it refreshed oh, wow. the buns. That's... So right before service. Insider right, tip. It, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it, it really is like you, you figure it out, you come up with something. Um, so. I had made what I thought was like this beautiful, beautiful bite. It was a gorgeous looking little bun. And I made sure that every bite you would get all the different flavors. So the, the, the producers come around, the casting producers come around, they ask me some questions, they look at my bun, they flip it open, they pull out a little bit of the meat, and they try like one bite of the meat, and then they dip one of their forks into the sauce and taste that. 
and then they walked on. And that was it. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> but then I realized they were tasting 200 plus sure. 300 dishes that day. So they weren't, they weren't eating. And they're, they know enough to be able to look at your dish and already can tell like what the texture is gonna be like, what the taste is gonna be like, and they just taste the two components. They know what a steamed bun tastes like, they don't need to taste that. Uh, and then from there, it was a lot of more personality um, questions. I had to answer a lot of the same questions that I already answered on paper, but in front of the camera, because no matter how good you look on paper, ultimately you have to be a good presence on camera because right. it's a TV show. Uh, and for some reason, I had never had any theatrical desires. I had never had any desires to be on TV. Uh, I was what I would consider an introvert then. I still kind of am. Um, and I just kind of opened wide as soon as there was a camera pointed at me. I don't know what became of me. I was just like, well, this is what I do. This is how I'm gonna do it. And I'm a really great cook and I'm gonna kick ass and take names and win this thing. And that's what they wanted to see. And then so I was called back the next day. Uh, we did some more interviews, uh, more paperwork. We had to undergo a psychological evaluation. <laughs> wow. We had to go undergo a background check. I had to send them a, a, a blood sample. I mean, it was just like, wow. that's how that's... I knew. It's like, okay, if they're paying for me to get a, yeah. a blood then tested, they're serious. I, I think we're, we're okay. So It's like in, you're getting married. I see. So, <laughs> it's a lot, more than that. Um, and so ultimately in December, they told me, hey, you got on and <laughs> your flight's in three weeks. So and you can't tell anybody. So obviously I think people knew what was up because everybody knew I was auditioning in Columbus in October and then suddenly I go radio silent in January for two mm. months. People obviously put that together. Um, yeah, and then we uh, flew out to LA. Um, I was there for a total of five weeks, uh, and which turned out to be eight episodes. So from an, if from an insider's perspective, yeah. to what degree is it actual reality TV? To what degree is it directed and scripted? Here's what I would say is they always told us, be yourself, but be the biggest version of yourself. Whatever you are, turn it up to 10. They never coached us, except the one, the one piece that I really got from it, and I still apply to this day, is they say, when we ask you questions, answer in complete sentences. So if they say, what are you making? You don't say duck. You say, well, chef, I'm making duck. I'm gonna put this nice tamarind glaze on it. I'm gonna give it a little sear, pop it in the oven for 15 minutes, see how it goes. They want you to tell a story every right. time you talk. And then during the little confessionals that you see the little talking heads, you know, straight talking at the camera things, what I learned kind of intuitively was that if they asked like, oh, how do you think Courtney did today? And if I said, oh, she did okay. Well, that clip's not gonna make it on air. What's gonna make it on air is if I say like, well, I don't know if Courtney deserves to be here. She's kind of faking her way through this whole thing and she just didn't really have the chops and I don't know why, you know, she's here. Now, I'm not gonna say that as a lie, but if I did have a strong opinion, a, a real opinion, I would give it for sure. And that's what made it. Uh, and I kind of realized that pretty early on. But, uh, and even, even Gordon Ramsay and Joe Bastianich and Graham Elliott, the other judges, they were also sort of amped up versions of themselves. They were 
not fake in that way. Right. You know what I mean? Did you interact with them any off of the set? Not too much. Sometimes there'd be a little break where they're resetting equipment and Gordon would do a little small talk, but mostly he was a executive producer on the show. He had an earpiece in. So every time he came up to us to ask us questions, you could always tell he was distracted. Mm -hmm. Like he would ask us a question and then he'd be looking around and kind of like very kind of skittery, um, jittery because he had producers in his ear and saying, okay, now go talk to, uh, go talk to Francis next or you know, see what's happening over here. Uh, Graham Elliott was great. He was a sweetheart. Uh, I've met him a couple of times in uh, real life since then uh, when he, he's a judge for Top Chef now. So we got to see him uh, this past year in Lexington. Um, so he was a real sweetheart. He would actually stop like at the end of a shooting day and just like chit chat with us for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Bastianich was kind of a dick. You know, he didn't really interact with us, and that was kind of part of his persona. Yeah. I, too. I I saw the segment where he where he dramatically threw away the yes. dish. Put my food in the trash. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, obviously, it's theatrics to keep to keep people watching. Yeah, absolutely. Situation like that. Yeah, that was. You know, what's interesting is while I was on the show, like we had our electronic devices taken away. We got like monitored phone calls with our family. Oh. Like it was not jail, but- you're in, you're in lockdown. Well, yeah, because we're shooting it and they don't want any spoilers to go out. So, um, so this is your life. You go to bed early, you're downstairs in the lobby, dressed in your outfit with your second outfit on a hanger by 7.30 every morning to get into the shuttle bus to drive to Paramount Studios for your shooting day, which you know nothing about. You don't know what the challenge is, what the ingredient is, where you're going until you get there. And sometimes it's like, we're gonna do a quick fire challenge or whatever it's called, uh, or a mystery basket, or we're gonna get on another shuttle bus and go out to a military base and cook for 150 soldiers on this camp, divided into two teams out in the desert. You have no idea. So for me, I had no perspective at all about my real life anymore. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, standing in front of those judges, I couldn't take a step back and say, this is just a TV show. It doesn't mean that much. Standing in front of the judges, I was like, this is my life. Yeah, this is all you've got. This right is all now. I've got. I have to please them. I have to win. I can't go home. It's interesting. Right? Yeah. And when I got home from the show, I would say for about a week, I was just not ready to go back to real life. Like I was not adapting back. And I don't want to overstate this and I don't want to diminish what soldiers go through, but there, there are some parallels. You're in this weird place, you're disconnected from your family, you're with this tight group of people all kind of competing and surviving and then one by one they disappear. Mm -hmm. They get eliminated, your friends that you've just made It'll get eliminated on the show, and you're like, is, am I next? And this is all you can do. And then suddenly when you go home, you can't talk to anybody at home about it. Right. Nobody at home understands what you're talking about if you did. Uh, and so all I did was obsess and, like, the funny thing is as soon as I got kicked off the show. And so you don't even know really what happens on the show after, after you're, no, uh, you're no. gone. It's a, it's a mystery it's to you. It's a mystery to me. Now, what happened was on the cab ride to the airport home, I got on Facebook because I hadn't had my phone for five weeks. I got on Facebook and I friended every single member of the cast. And every day or two, somebody would reply oh, to my nice. or, 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 or friend me back because they just got kicked off. So I had these mixed feelings of like, 
Oh, it's a lease. Oh, oh, honey. <laughs> so, too got, bad. Too right? bad for a lease. But, and then all I wanted to do was ask Elise, like, what happened? Because she would be there for one or two more challenges after me, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I'd be like, what happened? What happened to Francis? Did this thing happen? How'd you, you know? So you, so you did interact with the rest of the, with yes. other contestants. Yes. And I've kept up, uh, haven't kept up as much in recent years, but we definitely kept up for a little while. Because, uh, you know, it's such a strange experience. Right. At the time, if you think about it, um, there were 22 of us that got aprons on that show, and that was season five. By the time I ended my tenure on that show, there were only 100 people in America who have gone through that experience. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Right. Right? Literally just these, these little, little um, you know, cadres of people that understand what you went through. So we definitely kept up for a little while, but, you know, everybody's gone on to their own lives. Sure. So you did... You mentioned earlier you had a radio uh, show on WRFL, I believe. Yes. Was it? Yeah. Uh, which is all the way to the left at UK. Eighty-eight point one. And you were the culinary evangelist. Yes. And did sort of what I'm doing now. You were on the other yeah. side of the mic. Yeah. So I, when I was in college back in the '90s uh, at UK, I spent uh, really the best years of my life at WRFL. Uh, met so many great people. A lot of times now, if you meet interesting people, there's always a decent chance that they roll through WRFL. It was like, it didn't produce interesting people. It was a magnet though, for, for weirdos and outcasts. Um, so I always had an affection for RFL. And then when I came back and after MasterChef, I wanted to kind of parlay, my brand at the time was the culinary evangelist. And I wanted to kind of parlay that into something I've always been interested in. I was like, well, what if I did a talk show, a one-hour talk show where I just interviewed other food people in Lexington? So I did that for a year at WRFL, and then when Lexington Community Radio started, I jumped over there, did a year there, and both of those years were like live radio. And then after that, I kind of went independent and did the podcast, kind of like what you do now, traveling around with a little mobile mic uh, recording. So all in all, I did that for about three years, interviewed somewhere between 120, 130 people. And all of that is still archived online. Yes, it's on uh, WordPress. If you look up WordPress Culinary Evangelist. Yeah. And I'll, yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, for this so people can go, can go uh -huh. see that. There's a, a wealth of, of interviews there. Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, I'm very grateful to have spoken to kind of a who's who of everybody that's doing interesting food stuff in Lexington. And it created all these connections that I had later on when I became a professional and when I uh, became a restaurateur, I already knew all these people I've had. Uh, not just, you know, it's not like meeting somebody for five minutes at a party, like we've sat down in front of each other and talked for an hour. That's, right. that's something, sure. you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I have to ask you about this because it, it taps into my own childhood somewhat, mm -hmm. which is that, that at Atomic Ramen you have very much a sort of comic book superhero mm -hmm. focus. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And tell me how that developed. I've been since, uh, I remember the day I discovered comic books for real. It was, I was at a computer camp at Western Kentucky University when I was like 12. And at their, I think campus bookstore, they had one of those little rotating racks of just like single issue comics. Mm -hmm. And I picked up a copy of the Uncanny X-Men and that was it. Yeah. Like I was hooked, hooked, hooked uh, on comic books for, for most of my life and into adulthood. Uh, and owning a video store too definitely 
added to that sort of level of just like being a real geek about stuff, just like being a real nerd and like getting into stuff and who directed what movie and who did what remake and this is an adaptation of what and this is the story. And, uh, and so I've always been interested in that. And then once I started doing food and I started thinking about, I honestly didn't sit down and think what is the theme or motif of this restaurant. It was just automatic. It was just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have it be monster and comic book and superhero related. So the more I thought about it, when I was coming up with names, the, the two main candidates for the name of this restaurant was Atomic Ramen and then Kaiju Ramen. And Kaiju is the Japanese word for giant monster. So Godzilla is a Kaiju. Um, and then once I settled on Atomic, I got um, friends and acquaintances who I knew who were in the, the comic book and the and illustration um, uh, profession. Uh, the, my logo is done by Graham Allen of Square Pegs. Uh, he's probably best known in Lexington for all the big murals he's done. There's one on the side of Apollo Pizza. There's one on the side of Pazzo's. Uh, there's one on the side of, I think, Rooster Brew in Paris. Uh, he's done all kinds of, uh, there's one in, uh, in front of uh, Kentucky for Kentucky, the, um, the Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. uh, so he created my logo. Uh, Bryce O'Quay, a local uh, comic book artist, created uh, these three characters uh, that I wanted, kind of, not even mascots, but just like three characters uh, in this universe that, that Atomic Ramen exists in. Um, so it all came very naturally to me. Uh, I ended up kind of emptying my house of all the pop culture art <laughs> at first uh, to take to the shop. And then it gave me a great excuse to buy like Funko Pop figures and more art at Woodland Arts Festival or Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, just a, it was just a natural extension of who I am. As our interview came to a close, Dan wanted to discuss an issue he's been working on while wearing his other hat as a community activist. Uh, we just recently um, sort of completed as an ongoing project uh, called the Belong Lex Project. Uh, we worked with Kentucky Equal Justice Center to create a, a beautifully designed poster by Cricket Press um, that says very simply, uh, immigrants and refugees belong here. Uh, and we printed up 700 of these posters and we are disseminating them throughout Lexington to uh, our first wave has been small businesses. In fact, uh, La Petite downstairs in their window has one of our posters. And we kind of wanted to reframe the conversation about immigration, which has become so divisive and negative and just like every day there's some new outrage you know, uh, coming from the border or somewhere else, that I wanted to really reframe the conversation to make a simple message that immigrants and refugees belong here. And by here, I mean specifically Lexington, but we're talking about America. And I wanted to remind people, especially putting them in uh, small business windows, is that a lot of these small businesses, a good number of them are run by immigrants and refugees. and that immigrants are already our neighbors, our friends, the people who run our dry cleaning, the people that we have dinner at their establishments. Um, our second phase, uh, we're planning to get them into the, the hands of churchgoers to put it up in their churches and places of worship, synagogues and mosques, uh, and also in classrooms and people's offices, basically anywhere where somebody's going to see it, uh, to really kind of spread this message all over Lexington and start reframing and letting people know that Lexington is an inclusive place. 
where can somebody get one of uh, one of the posters? So right now we have a, an Instagram called uh, Belong Lex. And then if you do see a poster somewhere out and you take a picture of it, our hashtag is Belong Lex. Um, and then we have a couple of drop-off spots or pickup spots right now uh, at Cup of Commonwealth and Chocolate Holler. Okay. Uh, but we're hoping to uh, add a few pickup spots. So as would well. somebody just go in and ask for, go to the desk and ask sure. for one? Yeah, just say, hey, can I get a Belong Lex poster? Uh, right now, we're encouraging people to not just take one and put it up in their house. Right. Uh, we want, want people to yeah put it in a out. public place where a lot of eyeballs can can get on it and hopefully start some conversations. And are those free to absolutely free? Yep. Yep. Yeah, we got a grant through um, Bluegrass Community Foundation, um, and so it's completely paid for project. Uh, worked on it with Kentucky Equal Justice, who they do a lot of um, uh, legal work for uh, immigrants and uh, other people who need help. And I'll put a link to that. Instagram account in show notes as well. Great. So, sounds like a, uh, an exciting project. It is, yeah. It's an ongoing project and it's, uh, uh, I sometimes call them my extracurriculars because, you know, I've still got a business to run. Right. But my extracurriculars very often are kind of, for me, like the spiritual fuel that keeps me going. Yeah. Not, you've, got, you've got to focus on some other things too. That's yeah. good. <laughs> So where can folks find you on social media? Uh, I'm most active on Instagram. We have Facebook as well, but Instagram is probably where you find um, most of the stuff that, that right. we're working on. And I'll put links to that in show notes. And of course, they can, they can catch Atomic Ramen at the barn, at the summit. Yep, yep. And, and then uh, UK students. Yep, UK students and actually non-students. You can actually eat in the UK dining hall okay. as just a regular civilian as know. well. And then for the rest of this year, 2019, uh, and hopefully going on to future years, we're going to be at the uh, Kroger Field for UK home games. Okay. Uh, we, have, we share actually a, a big stall with Bourbon and Toulouse, another great local restaurant. Okay. So that's great that yeah. local, local places are getting into Kroger Field. Absolutely, yeah. And, and another sort of new thing um, that not a lot of university stadiums have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for sitting down with me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Yep. You can find links to Dan's social media accounts and to his culinary evangelist archive in show notes. A thank you to Sylviana Heron and La Petite Delica for providing a comfortable recording location. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast so you can be notified of new episodes. And please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. And if you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.